Welcome back to season three of the Hurt Podcast. And welcome back to the second part of our two-part episode on endometriosis, which is such a huge and important topic. So last week, we began the discussion on treatment options for pain from endometriosis. And today, we're going to continue that discussion with another very special guest. So stay tuned. Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alobi Patel. We are the female pain docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. So for this very special episode, we have Dr. Tayaba Ahmed, a board-certified physical medicine and rehabilitation physician here in New York City. So Dr. Tayaba Ahmed completed her medical degree at the New York Institute of Technology and residency at the New York College of Osteopathic Medicine, Northwell Health Hospital in Long Island, and the NYU Langone Medical Center, Rusk Institute of Rehabilitation in New York City. So Dr. Ahmed is a fellow of the Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehab and a member of the International Pelvic Pain Society. So in her practice, she addresses and identifies the role of the pelvic floor and how the pelvic floor plays a part in many disruptive chronic pain syndromes. And she believes that the body is capable of self-regulation, self-healing, and health maintenance. So throughout her many years of experience in treating pelvic floor dysfunction, she has advocated for the importance of pelvic education by contributing to numerous panels, podcasts, and lectures that address the need for treatment in the field, as well as hosting webinars for the Pelvic Health Summit in 2018 and 2019, and the Endometriosis Summit of 2019 and 2012. So welcome, Ty. Now, I know we both treat endometriosis, so I think this will be a particularly interesting discussion since there are just so many different approaches. And a lot of times we know that it takes a collaborative effort to get pain under control. I read that it takes anywhere between four to 11 years for women to become diagnosed with endometriosis, and that an average of six out of 10 patients with endometriosis go undiagnosed. Now, I feel like for me, that does ring true. Um, I feel like I've noticed that by the time the patient is coming to see me, they've had pain for so many years, like five to 15 years is the, the average, I would say, when I see patients. Do you find that to be true as well for you? Oh, 100%. I mean, I think even more. I mean, there are some patients that I, that have literally no idea. And some of them are like in their 50s. Um, and that that's, you know, the harder part, seeing the patients who are in their 40s or their 50s because they have these symptoms and they're some of them are like very close to menopause and they've had painful intercourse. And then when you delve more into their background, you find out about their menstrual cycle and then you find about their bowel issues and their bladder issues. And then you step back and you say, Hey, this could all be one thing. Have you ever heard of something called endometriosis? Some of them are literally like 52, 60. Um, and then when you ask them about fertility, are you having trouble having, did you have children? Oh no, I was never able to, oh, we tried IVF many, many times, but it didn't work. And no one ever said the word in like 20, 30 years. Yeah. Um, a lot of them. And then 
since I've started, like over the last five, six years of being just pelvic, where before I did sports medicine, um, now I do only pelvic. I've seen that like used to get patients in their thirties and their twenties. And I'm seeing now more like 13 year olds, 14 year olds, you know, even like 15, 17, a lot of 20 year olds. So it's great because that means if let's say they got their period, their first period at like 13 or 11, by the time they're 20, I mean, it's still like seven to nine years. Right. It's a while, but the 18 year olds are like only a couple of years out. And so for them, they're like, I have, you know, and I don't know if you notice this, but when they're younger, they have less memory than when they're older. So the, the 20 year olds are like, I don't know when my period started. And the 50 year olds are like, I got it in sixth grade when I was 11 years old. Like they know exactly when they have got it. Um, so I do think that, you know, and I, I also think that the seven out of 10 patients having endo, I think that the number is definitely inaccurate. I think there's so much undiagnosed endo. And so the, the endo that is diagnosed is far lower than it should be because think about the rest of the world where they're not getting treatment or diagnosis. And so we're just talking about the ones who are getting diagnosed. Exactly. Do you find like the younger population has heard more of endometriosis? Is that word as foreign to them as maybe the older population that have, you know, have undiagnosed pain for the past 30 years? Do you find the younger population to be more aware of endometriosis? I think for sure there's more knowledge from social media that's brought patients in. And when I say like, have you ever heard the word endometriosis? They say, yeah, one of my friends has it, or I saw it on Instagram or I saw it on, you know, I was looking it up because I read something or I saw a video or, you know, it's on like commercials now. Um, but I also think that the 50 year olds have hear it, they know of it, but they've no one's ever put it two and two together. And so they're like, oh, but I'm 50. I'm in menopause. Like, why would I have that now? And they don't understand that it actually is something that you don't have for like a few years. You have it your whole life. You're born with it. It's in your fetal cells and it's genetic. So, um, and then now people like will say, well, it's like kind of when people are like, I'm a diabetic, but they go on diabetic medications and they're like, well, I'm not a diabetic anymore, but that's because I'm not. Um, it's the same thing. They're like, oh, well, I had endometriosis. And then I had a baby and now I don't. And that's not how it works. So. Do you do you find for you, I mean, you know, I'm not sure what stage you see the patients in, but for me, I feel like a lot of times I see the patient after they have already received a diagnosis of endometriosis. Like the patients that are being referred to me a lot of times are from OB-GYNs. And so I, at this point, they've already know that they have endometriosis. They might be getting treatment for it in terms of any kind of surgery, but maybe not, but either way they like are aware that they have endometriosis and that is what they're being sent to me for, to help with some of that pain for you. Is it more the opposite? Like, are you more that beginning? Yeah, it's the opposite. But for me, because I'm physiatry, I'm rehab and, you know, just based on what people are searching, um, they find us when they are dealing with painful intercourse and pelvic floor dysfunction. So sometimes the symptoms are what brings them to the diagnosis. Um, so obviously for me, anybody that has a uterus, um, one of the first things I'm looking for is a possibility that they could have endo. So, uh, you know, anytime anyone with a uterus comes in and says, 
Um, I said, when was your first period? How old were you? Was it painful? Did you ever miss school? Did you ever miss work? Did you, um, have you ever thrown up from your period? Have you went to the ER? I mean, these are just like the basic questions I ask in like the first five minutes of meeting any patient with the uterus. I also treat men. So it's, you know, it's a little bit of a different diagnosis. We're going down different routes, but with anyone um, with the uterus, then we're like, okay, so now we've talked about your period. If they're like, yeah, I was put on birth control. Well, were you put on birth control for birth control or were you put on birth control for your period management? And so some of them will be like, well, I was put on it and I've been on it. My period's really terrible. And I stayed on it until I was, I am now 35 years old. And then I came off the pill and I'm having painful periods or I'm having pain with intercourse. And so for a lot of patients, I'm like, oh, did you know about this thing called silent endometriosis? And then I explain to them what that could mean. And and then we go through the fertility conversation. So even my like 18-year-olds that come in, I tell them like, listen, you have painful periods. I know it sucked. You went on the pill. And now you're feeling much better for some people because some people respond to the hormones and some don't. Um, and now they're like, well, I'm here because I'm having painful intercourse. And so I have to explain to them why they're having the painful intercourse, why they're having urinary symptoms, why they're having the bowel symptoms. But then I also explain to them what, what the possibility of having endometriosis later in life can mean. So, okay, why do we take out endometriosis? Why is, why is it important to know if we have endometriosis? So, you know, if they're 20, do you want children? Well, you probably don't know if you want children. And so a lot of times they're like, I don't want to talk about fertility. Okay. Then I usually insert my one blurb of endometriosis can it can cause infertility because it can it's an inflammatory disease. Just so you know, if you're ever trying to get pregnant later on in life, just remember that doctor who mentioned the word endometriosis. And that's it. I won't like bug you and I'm not going to force you into having this random conversation about fertility. But then I get the 35 year olds who are like, I'm single. I have painful periods. Could I um, have trouble get- getting pregnant? I don't have, any- I don't have a partner. And then many of them are like, so should I freeze my eggs? What are the consequences of that? Will I have more pain? And, and then we go down that road. So it- it's interesting because I see so many different types of people at different points in their life. And so it's definitely not like just pain management. It's like almost like guidance, um, how they can deal with the, the quality of life issues like bowels and bladder, but in, you know, intercourse, but also fertility and, and, and then, and then also the pain management because, you know, endometriosis is really difficult to, to live with because of the pain, but then also like, this can affect your menopause and this can affect, this can turn into an, into a cancer. And so you, you know, these are the consequences of having endometriosis. So it's a much bigger conversation if you, if there is that diagnosis. I completely, completely agree with you. It's really interesting seeing patients at the different stages, because for me, like I said, I see the patients more at that tail end where they have a diagnosis. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that that diagnosis correlates with their pain. Like they may have pain due to the endometriosis, but they may have pain that has nothing to do with the endometriosis, or just is more like reflective of um, the pelvis just overall being inflamed and they could have other nerve-related um, inflammation in that area that's not specifically because there's endometriosis right over that spot. But either way, like they at least have 
the diagnosis of endometriosis and they're being treated in some way, possibly hormonally, possibly with a surgery or something, they're being treated in some way for the actual endometriosis. And then I'm kind of handling more of the uh, pain part in terms of, you know, nerve blocks, medications, um, things of that nature. But it's interesting because the, even just like the emotional state, I feel like of the patient is so different at different spots. Like the times when I've seen someone, when they had not been diagnosed with endometriosis is very different from the kind of, um, emotional state of the patient that already has a diagnosis. Both can be equally as, um, triggering, but the hearing for the first time that this is what you have is different from knowing that, accepting it. Um, and then now kind of having more of an attitude of, okay, okay, what's the plan now? How are we going to, uh, how are we going to treat this? I already know what I have. What are we going to do next for you? Like, because you kind of see patients both on both, uh, ends of those, how do you feel like they differ from each other in terms of their, um, how ready are they for treatment uh, emotionally? How are they feeling? Um, do you incorporate sort of emotional aspects to treatment, like cognitive behavioral therapy or other ways to sort of employ uh, how they feel both physically, but also mentally? So I think it all, you know, for some people, like they come in, like I said, and they have different goals, right? You know, when you're 18, 19 or 16, and you're trying to put a tampon in and it hurts, your goal is not to have intercourse at that time. Most people are like, they, they cringe at the thought of dilators. Um, and then there, you know, it depends, like, is your goal having a child? Is your goal get it, you know, having no pain is your goal, um, you know, not having constipation. What, what, what do you need in this moment right now to get you through the next month week? I mean, at this point for some of these patients, it's like, it's 30 days of pain. And so I think it depends on where the patient is and what their goals are. And for some patients, like I said, fertility is like number one and they just want to get pregnant and they want to know how to get pregnant. Like I had a patient recently who came in who asked me to be a part of her pain team because she's going to be doing undergoing IVF and she is scared of how she's going to react and all the hormones are going to put her through. And she's like, this is my chance. So at that point, like she just needs someone to be able to help her so that she doesn't have as much pain when she's you know, basically driven. And so, and even, even then a lot of patients don't understand, like, you know, and then sometimes you see these patients who never had their endosurgery and they've been dismissed their whole life. And then they're, they're just really mad and upset at the world. And I mean, they're glad to get a diagnosis and they're glad to have it removed, but it's, it's pretty bittersweet. I mean, to have to have lived with that for like 30 years and then all of a sudden find out and then it'd be too late and now they can't have children or they've had painful intercourse their whole life. Or So, you know, we always include cognitive behavioral therapy if, if anxiety or depression is definitely a, a part of their life, which for most people with pain, it is. Um, I mean, obviously we, we want patients to be aware that like, we believe in your pain. We know your pain exists. I mean, I don't, I think, 90% of 95% of the patients that I've thought, how, Oh, this patient sounds like they have, en uh, they have endometriosis has had endometriosis. I mean, there's maybe like one or two patients I can even think of that 
didn't even have endo, but it was just kind of like, there was enough to add in that, like, let's see if maybe this could be endo because so many women are undiagnosed with it. Um, that majority of people actually do have endo. Um, and, and, and a lot of those patients are, are upset when they find out they don't have it because they're just grasping for a diagnosis um, and that validation that they could have something. So, I mean, for the rest of the women that are diagnosed with the surgery, just getting them to the right doctor who will do an excision, who will remove it and not just do an ablation and, you know, make sure that they have the proper treatment. It's huge. And, um, and then after that's where I come in again. So we do a little bit of prehab and then a little bit of post rehab. Um, and so they're getting their pre pre-surgical cause you know, it's like, I'm sure with everything in pelvic, there's like no post. <laughs> it's like have a baby, no post, um, you know, Oh, you're going to grow this baby for nine months. You don't need physical therapy. You'll be fine. It, it's, it's the natural way. So for whatever reason, America is like so behind in that. Um, whereas Europe and all these other Australia, well, they require pelvic physical therapy before you even leave the hospital. Here they don't. Um, these women are undergoing these huge surgeries. I mean, sometimes they go in thinking it's going to be like a two hour surgery and it ends up being like a seven hour surgery. And there's endo on the bowel and the bladder and there's, you know, their thoracic endo. These patients are being sometimes admitted overnight and days and, you know, and there's no rehab. So that's why it's so important that, you know, someone's following them because surgeons do their thing and they follow up, make sure there's no infection. But many times that's the end of it. I mean, they don't really do a ton of follow-up post-surgically. And so patients need that doctor or someone to manage them. So that when, you know, and that's the thing about endometriosis, which I'm sure, you know, just because endo is out doesn't mean their pain is gone and that's it. It's over. And it's like this, my life's, you know, it's like when you have a pen, uh, you know, an appendectomy and you have appendix pain, and then all of a sudden you take the appendix out and it's like, great. Voila. I feel amazing not the same for endo. You know, there's always tissue. There, there could be tissue that's missed. It could have been difficult to get to. I mean, how many times have we heard that where patients have had surgery and they're like, doctors go, the surgeons go in, they can't get it out and they close them right back up and they leave it. Uh, and that's here in New York. So that can happen anywhere in the world. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's definitely something that I don't, you know, it's it, you really feel for patients with endometriosis because they live a really difficult life and you know getting that treatment and getting um the validation is just the beginning i completely agree with um with what you said in terms of it's just such a complicated disease and it's so variable by patient and, you know, absolutely in terms of, it's not like a different, like an appendix, like removing the appendix and then like, you're done. That's it. That's it. That's the end of it. Uh, a majority of the patients that I've seen with endometriosis are patients that did have resections, like majority of them, by the time they've come, they've, they're sent to me, um, majority of them have already had surgery of some sort. Now, I always obviously prefer it when they haven't, and we can try to minimize that if, you know, if possible. Um, especially any kind of surgery that's going to remove organs, like don't want that unless like really like try to avoid that as much as possible. 
And so um, they've already had all of that, but they're coming because they still have pain. And that's the most likely, I feel like that's the most likely consequence is that they've had surgery or they've had certain treatments, but they still have pain because it's, to me, I feel like pelvic pain is just so complicated and it's not like any other part of the body. And it's just such an understudied in a lot of ways area that you can't, there's not like one treatment. There's not like you can just do one treatment, one treatment of some sort, whatever that might be, physical therapy, surgery, an injection, whatever. And that's it. You're done. It doesn't really work that way. It's usually a big collaboration between multiple doctors to uh, really get the pain, pain or fertility or whatever, you know, between those issues under control. And I wouldn't even say cured because that's not, you can't really use that word in endometriosis. Never. So I wouldn't even say cured, but more managed just to have something be managed. Better quality of life. Better quality of life. Yeah. And that's the thing that's so sad about it because like, they're never going to be cured and they kind of, but like, it is a whole collaborative approach. And I feel like a lot of patients sometimes want to do piecemeal and they don't really want to know, like, they're like, well, I'm going to see if the physical therapy helps before I try this. Um, but I tell them it's, it's not one thing that's going to make you better. It's usually a combination of this and this and this and this and this that will make things better. But if you're doing one thing, it's usually not, it's not going to work because you have to work on the brain. You have to work on the physical you have to work on, you know, there's the pelvic floor stuff going on. There's the bladder and the bowel, like, and you use all these muscles and you use all of these, you know, your, your central nervous system every day. And if you're this amped up and wired all the time, it's so, it's hard to trick your body into feeling like you're not in pain. Let's actually break that down. So from your perspective, what sort of therapies do you typically recommend? And obviously it's going to be very different and individualized for patient and what the situation that they're in, you know, the age, the, what part of life they're in, but generally what types of treatments do you uh, recommend or partake in? And like, who do you collaborate with? Like what types of um, physicians or providers in general do you collaborate with? So I work a lot with public physical therapists, um, mostly because they, they do external and internal work. And so for most of our patients, we, you know, they have a lot of bowel issues and bladder issues and, you know, some of them don't even realize that they're connected. And, you know, it's hard. It's, it's one of those things. Like I can, I'll tell patients, like, I'm not going to take out your endo. I am not an endo surgeon. I can diagnose your endo. I can tell you you have endo, but I am not taking it out. And I know you don't want to have surgery as your first thing. For some patients, they've been living like that for seven years or 10 years or God knows how many years. And you never want to go into surgery, what I call a hot mess. You want to go like not hot and bothered. You want to be as good a shape you can possibly get to before you go into surgery so that when you come out of surgery, you're not, you're in as best shape as you can come out of surgery because you, you're going to be in pain from the post-operative you know, surgical wounds as is, you're already going to have enough hard enough time. So why not come out a little bit desensitized? So I, you know, we use nerve medications, um, neuromodulators to kind of decrease their pain. We, you know, it, depending on 
what's going on. If they have spine issues concomitantly, we can't just leave the spine alone. We have to address the spine issues. Now, because of all of this compensatory changes, like if you have endo and you're, you know, in a little ball in your bed all day long and you're pressing on your right side and now your hips hurting, you're, you might have not unintentionally created issues with your labor. I mean, your hip, um, you could have sacral issues just from the way you're sitting, postural changes, um, your tailbone, depending on how you're you're sitting. And so all these things, like, am I going to say, okay, well, let's have you see an orthopedic surgeon and fix your labral tear before you take out your endo? Probably not, because that's probably not the best order to do it in. Um, but if you've had an endo excision and you're also having hip pain now and your hip pain's still there, and now you have this impingement in your hip, uh, and you've done, you know, hip injections and nothing's really long lasting, then, then I might reach out to an orthopedic surgeon to have them to, to be seen. If they have GI issues, will I refer out for SIBO testing? Yeah. Um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, if they have, you know, bladder issues, do they need bladder, bladder Botox? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, you know, you know, could they have endos twin sister interstitial cystitis? Possibly. So, and you know, a lot of patients just assume, oh, well, I have urinary symptoms. I have interstitial cystitis and they've never had a cystoscopy. Nobody's actually checked inside. You know, they start doing pelvic physical therapy, their urinary symptoms get better. Well, then it was definitely not interstitial cystitis, but they've been carrying around that disease thinking they've had it for so long. So, I, I think a lot of times when you treat the pelvic floor, the muscles between the pubic bone and the tailbone, um, the, some of the bowel issues, that constipation that was like long-standing constipation gets better, the urinary symptoms, the frequency, urgency, burning with urination, um, feeling like you have a UTI, that all gets better. The painful intercourse, I mean, working with the physical therapist and dilators and wands can improve um, pain with thrusting and entrance. and then. Yeah. And then if you still have the period pain, but everything else is better, you take out the endo. I mean, obviously it depends on what stage you're showing up. If you're saying like, I'm having painful periods 30 days out of the month and you've never had a diagnostic lap, you should probably have one at this point. But if, if you can get those three things better before you have that, you're going to come out of surgery much better, better control of your pelvic floor, better um, symptomatic wise, because who wants to come out of a surgery where you might be on some opiates and then you might have more constipation and you might not understand that constipation and what to do about it and how to drink and what to eat and fiber and all that stuff. So I think it's just, um, it's, it's a huge collaborative effort between physical therapists and ortho and GI and uro and, uh, and pain management. No, I agree. And I think that's ultimately the more sort of complicating part with pelvic pain in general and with endometriosis is that it's not like a clear cut answer. It's not like back pain where you're like, okay, try some physical therapy, maybe try some medications, try some injections, didn't work. Okay. Go to surgery. Um, and it's kind of, and obviously there's nuances to that too, but it's, it's a little bit more directional. And I feel like with endometriosis is really is like a big question mark, depending on what the patient is coming in with and what complaints they're coming in with well so that the thing about that is that a lot of people think like okay i have bladder pain 
it's probably just endo on my bladder. So I'm going to have this endo surgery and they're going to take endo off my bladder and it's not better. And so is it actually bladder issues or is it pelvic floor dysfunction mimicking symptoms that seem like there could be bladder endo on there? And so that it, it doesn't hurt to start treating your pelvic floor earlier than later or like pre-surgically and then post. I mean, pre is always better because you can't do much for six weeks post-op anyway. And I, and I agree. That's usually my um, approach as well with a lot of patients with endometriosis. If they uh, haven't had surgery yet and are like considering it um, and their pain is, you know, tolerable, they have endometriosis, but it's not something where it's like, okay, it's just everywhere. They really just need to have surgery. They're having all kinds of other symptoms. Fine. If they're like kind of more in the question mark phase of should they have surgery, should they not? I'm usually a proponent of don't. Uh, let's see what we can get better without. And then and then you know what's left over. Like you've tried some other things, you kind of done it collaboratively. And then if you have quote unquote leftover sort of pain, then we can say, and we can kind of pinpoint it more towards where that endometriosis is. We can say, okay, maybe you can also try surgery. But I agree, like it's so, it's so individual for endometriosis compared to so many other pain conditions. That for me, I'm always um, happy when they have seen an OB-GYN already. Uh, they've already maybe started pelvic floor physical therapy. Because to me, I'm like, oh, good. You're already on your way. On your on track. Yeah. Right. As opposed to starting from like absolute zero of here I am. I have pain. What do I do? Um, because you do have to immediately start involving all the other teams, if you will. It's not something where it's like, uh, for me anyway, it's not like, a, like one at a time. It's kind of like all at once in a way. Um, because, you know, it's not like, oh, we can only try pelvic floor physical therapy and then see where you are. It's sort of like pelvic floor physical therapy, maybe some medication, maybe a nerve block, all those things sort of simultaneously, um, and see not same day, but (laughs) sort of simultaneously and see like what things are managing what now for you, like in terms of medications, um, what sort of medications do you typically employ for a patient with endometriosis? So I do non-opiates. Um, I know that there are there's utility in opiates. Um, and for some patients, the the flare or the time when they're in here during their menstrual cycle, they need it. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where I use my pain management doctors because you know, I, I don't do opiates, but I think there is definitely utility in it. Um, I do more neuropathics that help with the brain and desensitizing. So like um, gabapentin and pregabalin and also depending on their other symptoms, amitriptyline or Cymbalta, some SNRIs. Um, you know, I try to avoid what I can, you know, for side effect profile wise, because I know a lot of patients are not huge fans of the side effect profile, but that being said, I like to use suppositories because it's another, you know, easy way to get pain relief without necessarily uh, affecting the whole body. So they're not necessarily getting all of the side effects because try telling a 20 year old that you may have a side effect of waking. Um, Of course, they're not willing to try that. And then between their options of hormonals, birth control, and, you know, medications that are going to cause weight gain, now they kind of feel helpless and they can't go on anything. And so, um, 
using medications rectally or vaginally. And a lot of my endopatients prefer things rectally. They find that there is a little bit more systemic absorption and they get a little bit more pain relief. Um, I also try different creams and topicals, which sounds kind of crazy and bizarre, but you use like a good compounding pharmacy. There's many creams that can go subdermal so that they're getting some pain relief. Um, and then obviously, um, nerve block injections, and you know, that could be with steroids or without steroids. Um, but when I refer to pain management, I know they've often used infusions depending on where they go and who does what. What type of interventional procedures do you do like, or, or send out for like, do you do, do or recommend like Botox, for example, for the pelvic floor or anything in terms of the pudendal nerve? So I do, um, nerve blocks, um, the major nerves in the pelvic floor, there's, there's the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve, and then there is the pudendal nerve. And the pudendal nerve has a little branch that goes to the rectum and a little branch that goes to the perineum and a little branch that goes to the clitoris. Um, and each side of your body has one nerve. So it's not like one nerve is on the right side. It's going to go all the way to the left side. Sometimes patients are like, why? I don't get it but they're totally separate nerves, just like your legs have totally separate nerves that go run down. I don't do any spine blocks. So like the ones that I do are mostly peripheral nerve blocks. So they're, they're basically the, the, you know, that are going into the pelvis. So I'll do ilionguinals, which are where people think their hip bones are, but it's actually the front of their pelvis. And then I do genitofemorals, which are kind of like over the pubic area. Um, genitofemorals go down the genitals and down the legs as the, the word implies. And so for a lot of patients, depending on where their pain is, which is, you know, interesting because when you do an ilionguinal, a lot of patients with endo get relief. And I have to explain to them that there could be something in that ilionguinal canal that could be causing or compressing a nerve that's causing pain relief that's not necessarily endo because endo is typically much deeper in the pelvic cavity. And so they're always like, but I feel pain relief. I feel amazing. And, you know, sometimes patients are really willing to get rid of an ovary on the side because they think like, oh my God, it's on the right side. You did the block, the box gun. But I'm like, I didn't go to the ovary. I was way more superficial than that. And so I've actually saved ovaries from being removed because they're not, that's not their pain source. Um, and then, you know, I'll do hip injections. And so when they, when things are being like, it's kind of like diagnostic peeling away at an onion, like, okay, well, how much of your pain went away? 75%. Okay. Let's try this block too. All right. This block now with this block and this block, you got hundred percent pain relief. All right, great. So now we know where your pain is and it's not necessarily your endo or you do all these blocks and they get no relief. And you're like, okay, your pain is all endo and you need to, you know, you need to get this taken out. Um, the pelvic floor injections are the ones that are a little bit more complicated because um, they sound more complicated, but um, I use diagnostic ultrasound. I was not trained to do this intravaginally. So I go outside, which means I use landmarks with my ultrasound machine and I'm blocking the pudendal nerve. And depending on where I'm going in, I can block different parts of the nerve. Most patients with um, pelvic floor dysfunction, which I would say 100% of my endo patients have, because I don't think I've ever met an endo patient. Like when I do my internal vaginal exam, I can tell 
who's an endo patient and who's not an endo patient just based on the exam, because those endo patients are way tighter on a scale of zero to 10, just because they've been living with this pain for so long. Um, there, there's just, it's just really stringy and tight and you can tell who, who has endo. When I usually tell them like you have endo type pain. And then I'll sometimes see like a vaginismus who doesn't have endometriosis and, and be like, Oh, this is just vaginismus. And not that it's not bad, but we can, this is going to be easier to treat with endometriosis. Um, when you do like a pelvic floor block, you're typically not making all of your pain go away um, because there is usually, like we were talking about, multiple pain generators and not everything will make everything go away. Otherwise, it would be called a silver bullet and we, you know, we, we would be a millionaires because we would have figured out a way to make it go away. Unfortunately, it's just not how it works with endometriosis. Yeah, and I have the same sort of, approach. I do the same, the blocks that you mentioned. Um, yeah, do the same, so same sort of blocks. And I do just like you men- mentioned with the diagnostic component, totally agree. That is to me, the most important part for me and actually for the patient too, to get the information of, is this a part of it? And so I'm always like, this is diagnostic, hopefully it's therapeutic, like hopefully it lasts for a really long time. It works and lasts for a really long time but I want you to go home today and see how your pain feels. And if there are certain things that you do that trigger them, try to do it and see if your pain feels better overall. Like that diagnostic component is so huge in pelvic pain um, because it's so different from other parts of the body that even I kind of, I kind of like explain it as like, we're chipping away at parts of it. So see which parts are getting better and which parts are not. So then we can kind of like try to mentally figure out how much of this is, like you said, like just the endometriosis, how much of this is other just parts of the pelvis that are now subsequently irritated because of underlying endometriosis, but now there are other nerves that are involved and recruited in the pain. Um, And then I sometimes also do some of those spinal procedures that you um, mentioned. And I do like some sympathetic blocks, which is basically kind of blocking really just a major chain of your pelvis that sends signals to your brain. So that can sometimes be helpful. Um, and then also radio frequency ablation, which is fancy words for using heat to sort of more permanently, still semi-permanent, uh, but more semi-permanently deaden those nerves if the block worked, but didn't last. Um, but I agree. Like I also had a patient, it was funny when you were talking about ilioinguinal because, uh, I also had the same thing, an endometriosis patient who, uh, was also mostly complaining of front pelvis, um, pain, like front pain that was going a little bit into the leg and also going into the groin. And I was like, uh, and she was, and she was, it was like this, it's so funny. Cause it was like almost the exact scenario of like, I, it's, I feel like maybe it's my ovary and I think I might need to get my ovaries removed. And I was like, let's just try this block. And it was like a hundred percent pain relief. And I was like, I don't think your ovaries involved. <laughs> it's like, this is don't take out organs. Don't take out organs unnecessarily. It's wild, right? Don't you like wonder how many organs were taken out unnecessarily over the years? It stresses me out sometimes. I had a statistic previously that was like uh, 12, something like 12% of hysterectomies were done for pain and like there was like nothing wrong in terms of the organs, but it was like a pretty enormous number of organs removed simply because of pain without actually having much of an underlying 
uh, diagnosis. And I'm, and I'm, and that might be more in the past. Like, I think that's changing now where that's a little bit better understood. And there are, uh, there's more of a collaborative effort, uh, between various types of physicians. So, uh, I mean, I know for like, for me, a lot of the patients that come to me that have been referred to me by OB guides, they haven't had surgery. They are sent to me first to, they have a diagnosis, but they're sent to me first to help, to try to help treat the pain. And then if it's not helping, then maybe they will consider surgery. But I think it took a lot of collaboration to get to that point. I think that's, I think that's New York though, because (laughs) I, I agree. outside of New York, you see a lot more people who've had like hysterectomies for endo and you're like, uh, there's no endo in the uterus. I think you've got this taken out for no reason. I mean, I've had patients who've not even, not even very far, like New Jersey, who've had, they go in, they see the endo, they don't know what to do. They take out the uterus, they close the patient up and they leave the endo. I mean, it's like wild. Yeah. Like the things you hear and outside of New York. But that being said, I mean, I had a patient recently who had a hysterectomy and we did an MRI of her lumbar spine and it said fibro- uterine fibroid. And I was like, did you have a hysterectomy? Because <laughs> I don't know what this report is saying. Yeah. Um, and I had to call the radiologist because I was like, well, is there a uterus or not? And I was just like, this is New York. What's going on? Right. Medicine is not, I mean, it's not. It's not perfect. It's not perfect. And endometriosis is really hard. And I think you know, adenomyosis really, and fibroids and a lot of gynecologic stuff is really scary. And, you know, and without knowing enough, I mean, it's really, really, it's really one of, one of the hard, I think it's, it's a hundred percent, probably the hardest thing I treat. So. Oh, absolutely. Um, I feel like endometriosis and fibromyalgia are probably the two hardest things that I've had to treat and have had to manage. It's a better way to put it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like really just have it under somewhat control is it's like the hardest thing to manage. And I, and I do think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that, um, you know, generally historically pain in women or females or those with uteruses is just far less studied than male and male sexual dysfunction in any way. And like, I mean, it's like a 20 to one ratio of how, how poorly, um, pelvic pain in females is treated versus those of male genitalia. And it makes such a big difference because the research is so behind. It's like, they're trying, it's, it's increasing now, but it's still going to take many years, I think, to reach the point that we have already reached for men. I mean, like in the endo what documentary, how when they called uh, endometriosis the white woman's disease, and it was like literally because only white women could afford to get treatment or like even say, hey. So, like, I, you know, when I see like a 50 year old who's like, oh, yeah, I had endometriosis, I'm like, wait, what? You were diagnosed? She's like, yeah. And I was like, 20. Like, I'm always like, tell me more. How did you get diagnosed? Like, I'm always so intrigued because you never hear it. And like, if they're, you know, a, a black patient or a Hispanic patient or even like an Asian patient, like they're like 35, you know, like minimum age. Like, you're not, you're not seeing this like at 20. 
I mean, and I think that's one of the major reasons I joined social media because it was like, well, if people aren't going to find out about it on the internet, then the best thing we can do is get on social media and try to get people to find out more about it. I mean, that's, that's a big part of why uh, Alpi and I started this podcast. I mean, <laughs> to, to try to, in some way, make it more digestible for patients and to spread some awareness so that hopefully they get answers sooner rather than, you know, 30 years later of having suffering from pain and infertility. And then uh, finally now seeing someone for it, or even just being taken seriously for any of their complaints, because that is one of the biggest things is they're not taken seriously. And so it just keeps getting preferred for year on year out. And then it sort of seemed like a, well, you know, periods are painful moving on kind of thing and not kind of seeing it as like, well, not all periods are the same and it can be very extremely variable with, with women. And you should take the complaint seriously. If someone is in debilitating pain anywhere in the body, you should take that seriously. Yeah. hundred percent. Moving on to, um, lifestyle. So we do talk a lot about lifestyle, uh, on our podcast and we are big advocates of lifestyle changes. Um, and so for you, do you employ, or do you recommend any particular lifestyle changes for women that have endometriosis? Um, and do you think like lifestyle factors in for pain control or even fertility? Uh, so hundred percent, I think a lot of dietary changes makes a huge difference. Um, I, I recommend the so Iris Orbuck is an endometriosis surgeon. She wrote the book feeding endo, um, her and Amy Stein, who's a owner beyond basic physical therapy here. They wrote the book. Um, Iris, I've known her for a few years now. And, um, they, you know, if a patient ever comes in and they're like, I don't know, this could be me, but maybe not. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to force you into a diagnosis, but why don't you read this book? And most of the time they read it and in like cover to cover in a weekend. And they sometimes call up Iris for a consult. And I'm like, be careful. She's a really expensive consult. Um, they, the book goes into physical therapy, things, you, exercises you can do at home, dietary changes you can make, um, you know, removing estrogen from any way you can move estrogen from your diet and your lifestyle. So like chemicals that you're using, shampoos that you're using, or makeup that have, that have uh, chemicals that can convert into estrogens. Um, you know, gluten-free, dairy-free, organic meats only, kind of trying a different, if you have interstitial cystitis as well, you know, trying the IC diet. Um, and then, you know, movement, right? It's really hard when you're in pain all the time to move. Um, but I try to incorporate some restorative yoga in patients during their home life. Like you can do a lot of yoga poses in bed, um, using heat, using castor oil packs, different things like the, the, the tricks of the trade when you have endo, like um, just hashtagging like endo sister and seeing what they're doing when they're having pain. Um, there are a lot of lifestyle things like swimming. I mean, I don't know about you, but if you ever, if I'm ever like having stomach, a stomach cramp or pain, or when I had my periods that were much worse when I was younger, I would just get my hot water bottle out and I would get my tea and I had and like rest my tea on my belly and I'd put my hot water bottle on my lower abdomen. And I mean, so water is like great. So if you can get it, get access to a warm heated pool and go swimming two to three times a week, it'll help relax all your muscles. Um, it's grand, it's anti-gravity. So it's great for, the, you know, you know, some of these 
like a lot of people are kind of endorphin junkies and and I'm always like if you are an endorphin junkie and you really you thrive off of it then how can I take that away from you but for some people they physically just can't do it and they they want to do something to exercise burn calories but not hurt themselves so swimming's great yoga's great um some pilates is great depending on how aggressive you are um avoiding things like heavy um like heavy weights and squats um you know long distance running depending on how fast you are how much how much uh, like contact to the ground you're having but you know it depends on you know what your needs are i mean i'm not going to say you can't do 20 minutes of elliptical if that's what you need that's what you need um but movement and mo- move like it, you know the, the old saying in residency is if you don't move it you lose it so it's kind of it, it still runs true here and i think that um it gets a lot harder to move if you are if you stop and so just moving a little bit always helps yeah i agree um you know and i do think that it is sort of like a a learned a learned thing in the sense that as a patient you can kind of figure out your triggers like you can if you take the time to stop and really pay attention um you can kind of figure out the things that are big triggers. And I feel like for the patients that I've had that are sort of more, which I've been seeing more and more of, I've been seeing more and more patients that are sort of in their, I would say early to late twenties. I've been seeing a lot more patients lately, like early to early to late twenties and kind of like college grad school type of years. And I've kind of noticed the same triggers in a lot of these patients, which is like two things. One is sugar um, sugar, like a lot of, uh, high sugar kind of foods that they've said have been triggers, um, alcohol, which makes sense in that age, in that age group. And like alcohol has been a big trigger. And then lastly, and I feel like we don't talk about this enough sleep. Like a lot of these patients just have very erratic sleep schedules, which makes sense when you're in school, you automatically will have kind of more erratic sleep schedules. A lot of times they're like, when they really think about it, they're like, yeah, I was studying really late for an exam, let's say, or I went out and I was up till four o'clock in the morning. And then I didn't get sleep for like several days in a row. And then I crashed on the weekend. And it's like, they had a bad week during that week. Like their pain either towards the tail end of that week or the week after was much worse. And it's like, because you need your body needs like seven to nine hours of consistent sleep to not have those inflammatory mediators in your body, just rise and circulate more. And just pinpointing triggers like that, which is, which is hard, obviously in a lot of patient populations to be, or, or us. I mean, honestly, like even for me, um, being able to get like consistent, good sleep is difficult, but it's something that we like, don't really talk about as much. And I think that's particularly true in our society where doing a lot is kind of valued more than having like taking care of yourself. And so those are kind of, I usually talk to patients more about like, you have to take care of yourself first. And even though it's hard and no one's saying that you need to cut out everything enjoyable in your life, it doesn't mean you can't ever have a glass of wine or you can't ever eat chocolate or anything like that. Be like more aware of what your triggers are so that you try to manage them. And especially if you know that you're going to be having a a worse week, like, you know, you're going to be getting your period and your pain is going to get worse. Like, especially in the week leading up, maybe just try to be more consistent with your schedule and try to relax more and try to 
uh, minimize those triggers as best as possible. But, you know, it's, it is, it is very individualized and it is something that the patient really has to kind of pay attention to and take ownership over. And want to do, I mean, it's also hard because, um, you know, in one stance we're saying, Oh, you got to move and be functional and get out, but then also rest. And, and, you know, I think it depends on how bad your endo is and how, what you can do. And, and you, like you said, if you know, you're about to have a bad week, sometimes, you know, don't try to muster through, try to relax and, and rest up because, you know, the spoon theory, you're going to run out of spoons if you're too exhausted and you're not going to be able to get to that wedding that you have to go to at the end of next week, you know, pick and pick and choose your battles and, and, and rest. I mean, I love my sleep. So I don't know. And, you know, I have two kids at home and I'm like, I worry about them. I have two girls and I'm like, anytime their stomach hurts, I'm like, could this be the beginning of endo? Could this, you know, but it's, 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 a, you know, endo is definitely a, a big challenge. And I think listening to your body and knowing your body is, is really, it's huge. I agree. And I think, especially with something as something like pelvic pain, where I think it's such a, you can feel so vulnerable with pelvic pain. It's hard to talk about even that, you know, I feel like at least for patients to have some control over their bodies in a lot of ways, like being able to kind of have be empowered in a way to have some control over their condition with things like lifestyle factors can just mentally, I feel like can make, can make a difference, can make you feel a little bit more in control and a little bit more like you can manage it. So I do always try to employ some of those lifestyle factors because that's something that that's an aspect that is not surgery or uh, an injection or something, something that they have control over. Yeah. And there are like certain supplements that patients like, you know, with ashwagandha root and different things that, you know, the magnesium that can help. And like, there's the Samine supplement that some of my patients, you know, really depends on how bad your endo is for someone who has really bad endo that's infiltrating. It's not going to help, but, um, now for some people, they only have like two or three days of painful periods and, and the rest of the month, they forget about it. And then they get those three days again and they're like, oh yeah, it's back. And so they come in, they see a doctor during those three days, but then the rest of the month, they're like, oh yeah, nah, I don't want to have surgery. I'm good. Right. But then it comes back again. Well, I think we covered quite a bit. You know, I think we really got into the different types of therapies that are the non-surgical different types of therapies that are out there. I think some of the take-home points might be really to see physicians as soon as possible and that really it will be a collaborative effort. So you're going to end up seeing a lot of different physicians and that's really the best way to go uh, in order to kind of control your pain, fertility, um, any problems that may arise with endometriosis. And then also the other things like injections, um, physical therapy, lifestyle factors, and more. Um, Any final thoughts from you for patients suffering from endometriosis? I mean, I think the biggest issue is that there's a lot of mistrust in physicians in the underworld. And I totally understand why, um, you know, so many of our patients come in crying because they're just so happy to have someone who knows what endometriosis is, that they don't have to teach about endo. Um, and it's unfortunate because I wish, you know, we could see all the patients in the world and be like, hey, we know what endo is. We know what endo is. But we're not everywhere. And um, and I want to say, yeah, go out and find that doctor that knows what endo is. But 
it's easier said than done. Um, and so don't give up if you've had a string of bad luck with physicians. Um, I think just research the doctor, you know, read the reviews, see what they say about endo, see if they have anything to say about endo. I mean, make sure you're picking um, good endo surgeons, um, use resources like Nancy's Nook and um, Eye Care. And, the, you know, there's so much out on social media now. Don't just believe anyone who says they're a pelvic pain specialist or, um, you know, or an endometriosis specialist because they could be doing um, ablations and not excisions. And so um, do your due diligence. And don't necessarily not trust everyone, but when you find someone you feel like you have a connection with and you think that can help you, trust them a little bit, you know, so that you can let go and try to get better and feel better. Thank you. I think those are great, great thoughts because I feel like, especially for patients, you know, you don't have to feel like there's no one else that can help you. You don't necessarily have to stick with only one person. You really have to feel comfortable. This is a, it's a, it's a complicated disease process and it's leaves patients in a really vulnerable position because anything that kind of involves a pelvis is just automatically you're going to be more vulnerable than other types of patient populations. And so I do think that, you know, kind of doing your research, like you said, doing your research and going with your gut and giving the different providers you see a chance, but ultimately trusting your own kind of judgment. And if you've done your due diligence and, you know, really looked into it, um, I think you can end up finding a good team. It just might take more effort than other types of disease processes. So thank you, Ty, for joining me in this really special episode. And I hope our listeners gained insight. Um, I know I did. I think this was like a great discussion because it's also excellent to kind of hear from other physicians that also treat endometriosis so frequently because, you know, we do have a lot of shared experiences in the same field. And it's, it's interesting and validating a lot of ways to hear the, the same sort of struggles. Um, and hopefully this episode also gives our patients some insight into the types of things that we see and treat and to know that there are a lot of options for treatment um, if you seek it out. So this episode wraps up season three of the Hurt Podcast, and we've had so much fun and learned so much from the season from our research, from our guests like you, and even from our patients and listeners. So we hope you've enjoyed the season and thank you to our listeners for joining us for season three and stay tuned for season four. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at the female pain docs for more content. Send us an email at the docs at gmail if you have any topics in particular you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.